You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. Will we follow God? That question must be asked anew by every generation of believers, and sometimes, multiple times, in a single generation. This isn't new. It's been this way from the beginning to the present. Consider Abraham, when God called him to go from his homeland in Ur to another place that he didn't know about yet, just in that direction. He had to ask the question, will I follow God? Consider Moses. When God came to him and said, you're going to be my representative to the most powerful man in the world, to Pharaoh. Moses had to ask the question, he had to wrestle with the question, will I follow God? The Hebrew people, when it was time to walk out of Egypt, out of slavery, toward the promised land, but through the wilderness first. Will we follow God? And on and on and on and on, through judges, as the people of God move through their history, as they go into exile, the question comes up again, and it isn't always answered the right way, is it? Will we follow God? This pattern repeats itself generation after generation after generation, and it continues as the church expands to include the nations within the people of God. We're we're considering that movement in detail in Acts, and we've already seen that this same question comes up again and again, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly. You'll remember Peter Early on, the first time he gets hauled in front of the council, the authorities, we must obey God rather than you. That was the question. Will we obey and follow God? And again and again and again, that question is implied. And now we come to Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11, and Peter's got to, he's got to ask that question again, doesn't he? It's not explicit quite so much, but it is implicit here. And the question isn't being raised in relation to antagonists outside the church, like the power players in the temple. The question is coming from fellow believers. We're told at the beginning of Acts chapter 11 that Peter was criticized by the circumcised believers in Jerusalem. He's got to ask the question here, will we follow God? So it's kind of one thing for Peter to sort of stand firm against outsiders because you got your brothers standing with you and we're all in this together. But now inside the church, there's some potential conflict and criticism arising. And Peter's got to ask the question and everybody's got to ask the question. Even the critics have to ask the same question, don't they? We're looking at the evidence. We want to see what's happening. Will we follow God? The narrative unfolds, and we find that that question, 
not only comes up again and again and again, but it functions to shape the identity of the people of God. The question, will we obey God? Will we honor God? Will we follow God? Even when He leads us into places and into groups of people we rather would not, that we'd rather not be involved in, will we follow Him? And is that going to transform our identity? Because in Acts chapter 11, Christian identity is created and shaped and formed. It's given its foundation. And it's not what people thought it was going to be. And it's driven by this question. Will we follow God? And the thing that we discover, what we find for the church in the first century, church in the 21st century, for the people of God throughout our history, we, this question is so important because we are defined by the one we follow after. Christians are defined by the one we follow after. In a little while, we're going to hear this again. This is the first time in the whole history of the world Christians get called Christians because they're followers of who? Christ. God in human flesh. So we're defined by the one we follow after. We're going to look at how this kind of shapes up in both of these situations. The point, like the, the thrust of both of them, you may think, man, you get this scene shift. You're in Jerusalem, then you're in Antioch, and one of them's kind of very contentious, and there's a lot of conflict, and then all of a sudden we're over in Antioch, and it's like, hey, we're here and we're teaching for a year, and it feels great. But in both instances, the question is, who gets to be part of the people of God? And how does that shape who we are? How does that define what it means to be a Christian? We are defined by who we follow after. So here's Peter. He's just been through this amazing experience, and word starts to travel. You've probably had this experience, right? Like the news gets around quickly, especially the bad news. Somebody goes down to somewhere, wherever you go to get your news, <laughs> and word begins to travel. Travel fast. Did you hear what Peter did? Not only did he go into the house of a Gentile, not only did he eat in the house of a Gentile, he baptized Gentiles. And so word spreads all the way back from, to Jerusalem. And when he gets back, because he's, he's got to go back, he's criticized by Jewish believers, and at this point it was mainly, well, the believers were mainly all Jews. Right? Remember the, the whole point is that this is the first time non-Jews are becoming believers, coming in. So he's criticized by them. And their question is, why are you doing this? Don't you know what it means to be Jewish? Don't you know what it means to be part of the people of God? We've got to create some barriers. We've got to create some boundaries. It's us and it's them. Why did you go into the house of an uncircumcised man and eat there? And so Peter's, you know, is he on his heels? Is he feeling the pressure? He's like, you know, it's one thing to get criticized. It's, it's hard to get criticized. It's one thing to get criticized by, like, unbelievers. It's one thing to get criticized by outsiders. But when folks in the church start calling you on, calling you on this and, and, and throwing out these criticisms, that's tough too. But Peter's ready, 
and he's going to give an account. And we get his perspective on this. No longer is it Luke saying, here's what happened to Peter. It's Peter saying, here's what happened to me. Here's what happened to me. And all the way under this question, we see his resounding commitment to follow where he sees the Spirit of God lead. And it defines him as a man. It defines him in relation to his contemporaries, in relation to his peers, in relation to fellow apostles, in relation to leaders. He is defined by his unswerving commitment in this instance to follow Jesus. It shapes his identity again and again. So he gives this account. And he talks about the vision he had. Shorter version here than in Luke 10. (laughs) But you get all the main parts. He's on the roof. He's praying. There's a sheet comes down. It's got all these different kinds of animals in it. Some are clean. Some are unclean. He's hungry. It's lunchtime. Stomach's growling. God says, "Go, go kill something and eat it. No! Nothing unclean has ever touched these lips. And he repeats to them this thing that he's learning. What God has made clean, you must not call profane. And Peter figured out pretty quickly that God wasn't talking about shrimp or pork. He was talking about people. He was talking about Cornelius. He was talking about Cornelius' family. And he was talking about you and me. Because in this passage... We're the Gentiles. We're the ones that Peter got criticized for baptizing. Sometimes we we identify ourselves with certain people in the chapter. Peter's kind of the hero. He's the guy. He's like, I'm going to do what's right even though I get slammed for it. But we're not Peter in this story, at least not on the first reading. We're Cornelius. We're only here with Christian as our name because Peter was willing to face the criticism he faced and give an account of what the Lord was doing and how the Spirit had fallen on the Gentiles. Raise your hand if you're a Gentile. That's all of us, folks. At least I think. If not, let me know after the service. Somebody may have a dissent there kind of thing that I don't know about. In general, though, So Peter's obedient to the Spirit. And at the end of Acts chapter 10, Peter's still speaking. The Holy Spirit falls upon all who heard the word. The circumcised believers believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. And Peter's response is, like, if the Lord is leading, we've got to follow. Like, if the Spirit falls on non-Jews, we've got to follow that. Because we don't call the shots, he does. And we are defined by who we follow. And that means we share the mark of our community, our defining mark, baptism, with them. We're defined by who we follow. The Spirit has fallen on them. We are not permitted to go against the Spirit. Because if we are, we're not following Him. So we're followers. So we're going to follow Him. So Peter orders them to be baptized. He defends himself in Acts chapter 11. And I want to draw your attention to what he says in verse 15 and verse 16. 
As I began to speak, this is his, his summary of the events that happened. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, the Gentiles, just as it had upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord. He has a new experience. And how does he evaluate the validity of the experience? You notice this? Because we have a lot of experiences, don't we? And sometimes our experience leads us toward Jesus, and sometimes it can lead us away from Him, right? Sometimes our experience can lead us toward Jesus. Sometimes it helps cultivate that. And sometimes things happen in our life, and we get angry about it. We think, I don't know why the Lord let this happen, and I don't want to have anything to do with Him if this is the way it's going to be. Or, or maybe there's some, some sin in our life or something, and we're like, well, you know, maybe the Lord's cool with this after. We're very good at self-justification, aren't we? And so our experiences, like we do it, and we're like, hey, it's not so bad. Maybe the Lord wasn't super serious when he said in Scripture not to do that. And, you know, and, and maybe that was a different time in a different context. And, you know, it's not super clear after all. And we can just sort of, you know, it's probably fine. We baptize our sin because our experience tells us, hey, it's okay. God made you this way. He's cool with it. So sometimes our experience leads us toward Jesus, and sometimes it leads us away from Jesus. The question is, how do we evaluate our experiences? Peter had an experience. He wasn't expecting it. How does he evaluate the validity of that and the direction it leads him? He remembers the word of the Lord. Every experience we have, whatever it is, if we want to evaluate whether it is from God and useful for drawing us more deeply into relationship with God in Christ, or whether it has danger of cutting us off from Him, remember the word of the Lord. What does Jesus say about this? Peter interprets the work of the Spirit in light of the words of Jesus. Because Jesus and the Spirit don't run in different directions. When we sense the Spirit, the work of the Spirit, when we see the Spirit doing new things, or we see things happening and somebody says, that's the work of the Spirit. We come back to the Scriptures and we say, you know, let's look at the Bible. And let's listen to what Jesus says. And let's consider how God has revealed Himself through the patriarchs in the Old Testament and the prophets in the Old Testament and the apostles in the Gospels and, and in the writings in the New Testament. Can we, can we look at the Scriptures and see consistency between what we find here as God has revealed Himself and this thing that's happening in our world or in the church, and if it's consistent with what God has made known about Himself, what do we, we do it and we give everything we've got to it. But sometimes things come up in the church life, and I've been involved in church life long enough to know, and you've been involved in church life long enough to know, sometimes things come up in church that are not consistent with the Bible. Don't they? And We've got to be diligent and disciplined readers of Scripture. Peter said to them, I remember the word of the Lord. How he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So he's, he's like, hey, baptism of the Spirit, 
We, where we were excited when it fell on us as Jews. We were surprised when it fell on the Gentiles. Nevertheless, Jesus said, this kind of thing is going to happen. We didn't see the full scope of it, but the Lord taught this. And so even if it counters our expectations, or even if it's a change we don't really like, if this is where the Lord is leading us, we are defined by the one we follow after. So we go. Notice how Peter's discernment is Trinitarian. It's deeply Christian. It's distinctly Christian. Remember, the Trinity is the thing, is one thing that sets us as a doctrine that sets us apart from every other religion in the world. No other religion has a Trinity. Not three gods, one God, one being in three persons. It's been a while since we've said this, I think, so let's just rehearse it together for a moment. Our God, and this is very, like, we struggle with this sometimes because we can't figure out, like, because <laughs> one plus one plus one doesn't equal one, right? So we kind of have a hard time with it. But all through Scripture, we've got people like Peter saying, like, we want to follow God, and, and the Holy Spirit, God is at work through His Spirit, and, and this is a confirmation of what Jesus said, and so all of their authority is running together. It's intertwined in this lovely dance of a movement here. How do we think about our God based on what Scripture says? And Scripture gives us one God, cover to cover. Hear, O Israel, the Lord's your God. The Lord is one. Let me try that again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord's your God. The Lord is one. That's better. Very good. Paul, yet for us there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. One God, and all things are to Him, and all things are through Him. Cover to cover, Old Testament, New Testament, one God, and yet, Jesus' face reveals God. And the Spirit's presence reveals God. And so the church throughout the years said, you know, we need, <laughs> we need a way to talk about this that, you know, isn't terribly confusing. So let's do this. When we want to talk about the unity of God, let's talk about God's being. Because right? if you've got more than one being, how many beings do you have? Two, three, four. And that's, just, that's just all over the place. That would be too many gods. Like one God, one being. And God is also three persons in relationship to each other. So when we talk about the Trinity, standing on the Scriptures... Our God is one God in three persons. Not three gods in one person. One God, three persons. And remember, one plus one plus one doesn't equal one. But one times one times one does. Doesn't it? So there are instances and situations in our world where you get three of something and wind up with one. And God has revealed himself in this way. And so Peter's discernment here is deeply Christian because it's deeply Trinitarian. He is paying attention to how God has revealed himself first in his son. He remembered what the Lord said, and then in his spirit, he saw what the spirit did. And that is a model for us, friends. We relate to God, our Father. 
through Jesus in the power of the Spirit. And when we see the Spirit at work, we remember the Word of the Lord who makes known the will of the Father. We're not just running off doing our own thing. We're not just making it up as we go along. along. We have received a faith. And it is a Trinitarian faith. One God, three persons. So Peter is attentive to how the Trinity, how the God who is triune, three and one, one God, three persons, how that God is at work to bring his purposes to realization in the world. And he models for us what that looks like. We go back to Scripture, we hear the word of the Lord, and we follow the leading of the Spirit. And when Peter does that, when he insists on being identified by following God in Christ in the Spirit, he finds he has influence. Because the folks who criticized him at the beginning of this account, number one, were silenced, but they weren't silenced for long. Because the next verse says, they praise God. So you've got this situation, and this is like best case scenario. There's a conflict. They criticize Peter. Peter gives an account of how this is in line with Scripture and God's revelation and what the Lord has taught and the Spirit's at work. And the criticism is silenced because God is at work. And the people who once criticized Peter now praise God because the Spirit has fallen on the Gentiles too. So Peter, in his faithfulness, in, he, didn't, he, didn't, he didn't give in when it came to his identity. He didn't falter in his commitment to follow God. He would obey God rather than humans, whether he's talking to the council, the Sanhedrin, or whether he's facing criticism from within. And in doing that, in standing firm, in having integrity, he exerts influence. And the church begins to catch up with the Holy Spirit. Imagine what would have happened if he'd caved. Imagine what would have happened if he said, oh no, I can't believe they're criticizing me. Have you heard what they said? I've already heard that word has gotten back to Jerusalem and I'm only halfway home. And he's got this whole time of just anxiety and what are they saying and oh, the bad things and oh, what am I going to do and what am I going to say? If he had faltered, where would we be? Because the gospel goes to the nations because Peter was firm. If he had faltered, we might not be believers. Remember who we are. We're the Gentiles in the story. Give thanks to God for Peter's commitment to following Jesus. His resolve in the face of opposition. And the influence that God used through him. Notice also Peter's humility. He's not kind of like, I'm the lead apostle. Don't you remember what Jesus said? On this rock, I'll build my church. Instead, his posture is, I see what the Lord is doing. I, rem I see what the Spirit is doing. I remember what the Lord said. How can I? Who am I to hinder that? He knows his place. And there's humility there. He's not this braggadocious, over-the-top, my-way-or-the-highway kind of guy. There is humility 
And God uses all of that, his commitment, his humility, to exert influence, and you and I are the beneficiaries of it. 2,000 years later. Peter was defined by who he follows after. The church would be defined by who she follows after, and we will be defined by who we follow after. The question for us is, do we have the same resolve? Do we have the same love for the gospel? The same fidelity to the gospel? Now, the scene shifts, doesn't it? We go from Jerusalem to Antioch. And again, you still see this tension, like not everybody's comfortable with this multi-ethnic church yet. Imagine that. (laughs) The more things change, the more they stay the same, huh? Not everybody's comfortable with having different ethnicities in the fellowship together. So some uh, who, were going, who were scattered in the persecution that took place over Stephen go to Cyprus and Antioch, and they spoke the word to no one except who? To the Jews. Peter may be baptizing Gentiles, but we're not going to. <laughs> this is a Jewish thing, not a Roman or a Greek or whatever they are. Not everybody was ready for a multi-ethnic church. Of course, that means they're not ready for what God is doing. Let that sink in. The insistence on, after the Spirit falls on Gentiles, the insistence on preaching exclusively to Jews and not to Gentiles means they are not following God. The Spirit's moving in this direction toward the nations, and they have their hearts turned in on themselves towards their own nation exclusively. We are defined by the one we follow after, and it's pretty clear who these guys are following. And it ain't Jesus, is it? It's not the Spirit. The good news is the Spirit isn't hindered by their unwillingness to follow. Among them were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. So there's kind, of a, there's kind of a reserve group and they get it. They see what the Lord is doing and they know not everybody in the group wants to preach to the Gentiles, to the Greeks, to the Hellenists, the Greeks. But they do it anyway. They proclaim the Lord Jesus and guess what happens? People hear the gospel and they convert. They repent. They follow the Lord. That's what happens when you preach the gospel. The Spirit of God works to draw people to Jesus, to convict of sin, to instill belief. That's what happens when you preach the gospel. And in this instance, because of their faithfulness, because they were committed to following Jesus, to following the lead of the Holy Spirit, a great number of Gentiles, Hellenists, Greeks, became believers in Jesus. They turn to the Lord. And in that moment, in Antioch, you get the first multi-ethnic church. Again, we should be grateful for that because we're the multi-ethnic in this scenario. The Greeks, the Romans, the Europeans, the Americans, all Gentiles, and not everybody wanted us in at the beginning. Thanks be to God, He is gracious and is not hindered by the short-sightedness of some people. Thanks be to God. 
the hand of the Lord was with them. A great number became believers. They turned to the Lord. So we have this crucial moment in Acts. Remember Jesus said this. It's like, you always want to kind of go back and say, you know, if you guys have been paying attention to Jesus, this wouldn't be so surprising. Nevertheless, Jesus had said, you will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. That should have told them, eventually, somebody outside Judea was going to come into faith in Jesus. That's happened, and everything Jesus had said is coming into reality. The nations, the nations are streaming to the God of Israel. Before this, the Spirit fell on groups of Jews. The Spirit fell on groups of Gentiles. There was still some separation, some distance, right? Cornelius in his house in one instance, Peter and the others in Jerusalem. But at this point, you have an ethnically inclusive ministry. And this sets the tone for the next 2,000 years and the next 20,000 years of ministry. It also means, because when the composition of the group changes, you got to start thinking about what you're going to call yourself, don't you? Circumcised believers doesn't really work anymore, does it? <laughs> you know, we could be the circumcised believers, but there's all these Gentiles in the group now, and what are we... What are we going to call ourselves? And somebody gets the bright idea. Well, we're followers of Christ. What could it be? What, shall, let's, what are we going to name this thing? You know, like, let's come up with a good name. What's our identity? Who are, maybe they had a meeting. And they started thinking, you know, maybe we should, let, let's talk about how we market this movement. Some PR. Let's get an advisor in here. We could run through some different schemes, maybe do some branding work. That's not what happened, is it? For the first time, they started being called, not just circumcised believers and Gentiles over there, God-fearers. The whole group, Jew and Gentile together, became known as Christians, Christ followers. Because they were defined by the one they follow after. And that's it. That's it. And I was thinking this morning... All of us have a variety of identities, don't we? We kind of slide into different identities when we slide into different aspects of our life. You know, we go to work, we slide into our coworker identity. Maybe you're a teacher. Maybe you're making deliveries. Maybe you're, you're working with a crew on a job site, whatever it is. Maybe it's an office. Maybe it's a retail store. But you slide into that identity, don't you? And your figures, like your patterns of speech, reflect that situation, don't they? And then you clock out, you get off work, you get home. And all of a sudden, that dominant identity isn't coworker, it's mom or dad or spouse. And your figure, figures of speech probably change, those patterns of speech, right? And you kind of, maybe you play a little bit differently. The serious person at work is now maybe more playful with the kids, maybe. We get to church on the weekend. There's another group. Now my identity is church member or church attender. And maybe I begin to use some different patterns of speech. And maybe I carry myself a little bit differently. 
All of us have these different spheres. I notice this with myself when I go to a, a group of a meeting of a group of pastors. I kind of slide into that identity. When I go to a meeting of a group of like professors and academics, I kind of that's a, that feels kind of different, doesn't it? Maybe I say different kinds of things. Not because we're, any of us are trying to be disingenuous, but just because different groups have different patterns and figures of speech. In a lingo, it's kind of a technical terminology wherever you are. The thing that really hit me is I'm thinking about like who defines us in all these different areas of life, all these different sectors of our life. What's the driving top level? Is it possible to have the top level identity? I'm a dad, I'm a coworker, you know, whatever it is. I'm a church member, I'm a pastor, I'm a boss, I'm an employer, I'm all these different things. Is it possible to have one driving top-level identity under which everything else comes? And if we read Acts, and if we pay attention to what we see in Pete, with Peter and his, his movement here, if we remember that we are defined by the one we follow after, then my identity becomes Christian co-worker, Christian dad, Christian pastor, Christian co-worker. All these things come into one place. Think about like a pyramid. Put Jesus follower at the top and put everything else underneath. And those other things can move around, whether I'm at work or at home or at some other meeting or whatever it is. But at the top, always number one is what? Christian Jesus follower. Would that change the way we live? Would that change the way the world, our neighbors, the nations perceive and engage the church? Because there are some places where we're not super quick to get that Christian part of the identity out front. <laughs> right? Kind of hold back a little bit. I don't want people to think we're weirdos after all. Get in trouble for that kind of thing around here. This is one of the most fundamental questions in life. Who are we? Who will I be? Will I be a part of the group who was first called Christian in Antioch? Or will I follow some other Lord, some other leader, my own heart? Whoever I follow after is the one who defines me. And that's a question all of us must face. It's a question we must deal with as a church. Who are we? Who defines us? And it's a question we must ask as individuals. Who am I? Who defines my being? And we see some patterns in Antioch that are helpful for cultivating this Christian identity, this Christian, this is who you are. What do they do? First of all, they're committed to following Jesus. There is constant attention to following Jesus faithfully. Verse 23, Barnabas shows up, he sees the grace of God, he rejoices and he exerted, exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast devotion. Pay attention to that steadfast devotion, it'll probably tell you what your identity is. We get steadfastly devoted to all kinds of things, don't we? 
baseball season just started. <laughs> Other things will be along in the fall. Season after season, we get our devotion may shift, but it's always some devotion. What's, that the, what, you know, what's at the top of the pyramid when it comes to our steadfast devotion? Barnabas says, remain devoted to the Lord in season and out of season. Remain devoted to the Lord. They're bringing new people to Jesus. There's another characteristic. They're exhorted to remain faithful, and they're making sure new people meet the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24. A great many people were brought to the Lord. When will they be able to say that about us? When I'm dead in the ground, I hope you can say, through that ministry, a great many people were brought to the Lord. Say nothing else if you can say that. Churches that follow Jesus introduce people to Jesus. That's it. It's almost embarrassing how simple that is, isn't it? <laughs> like, we don't have to have a meeting to figure this out, do we? How many evangelism committees have met for year after year after year in how many Methodist churches without one person in a decade meeting Jesus for the first time. I think we have meetings to keep from having to make sure people meet Jesus. Because it's embarrassing and it's hard. And what if they say, you're crazy and I don't want a part of that. I've told you before, one time I talked to a guy about Jesus, he just turned around and walked away and didn't say another word. And we don't like that. It's embarrassing. But churches that follow Jesus, make sure people meet Jesus. And that should convict all of us. Let's make sure whatever they say about Hope Hall United Methodist Church, a great, let's make sure they can say a great many people were brought to the Lord in that place. There is a deep commitment to the teaching of the faith. What a church is defined by following Jesus to they are constantly attentive to following faithfully. They bring new people to Jesus, and they love the teachings of Scripture. For an entire year, Paul and Barnabas, Saul and Barnabas, met with the church and taught a great many people. There is delayed gratification. Like, if it's simple, it doesn't take a year to figure it out, right? If it's simple, you don't need to give 365 days to it. If our God was the sort of God who, you know, we could just sort of like run a formula or an algorithm or, or just read a page or two, oh, yeah, that perfect sense. We got God down. We can go do something else now. And we live in a hyper-instant gratification world, don't we? Hyper-instant gratification. 
Like there are some places you order something on Amazon and it shows up at your house the same day on a drone. Don't expect that around here anytime soon, but in some places, right? It's like, get it here within the hour. I need it. I can't live without it. How different it is to say, you know what? My God is so infinite, so big, so majestic, so glorious that it would be a falsification of his deity if I could figure him out in an hour or a week or a month. To know this God is going to require of me sustained, deep love and sustained, deep study and attentiveness to the Scriptures. To know this infinite one, I've got to pay attention to the words that he has spoken and the way he has accommodated himself and the way he has offered himself to me. And it will not happen overnight. If you expect it to happen overnight, if we expect that, we have false expectations. We get here, the Lord does a new thing. They've got the first multi-ethnic church. New people are meeting Jesus. And what do they do? Let's just take a year and read the Bible together. Imagine what that would be. Let's just take a year. Well, you know, Paul, I got some things to do this summer. You know, Paul, I don't have that much time. Imagine what this commitment, like this is steadfast devotion. Long-term learning, long-term knowledge of God, long-term relationship with Jesus. And then the last thing is they embody generosity, don't they? Famine's coming. All right, we may not have much, but let's figure out what we got so we can take care of people. Now take a moment and imagine yourself in this community. Constant attention to faithfulness. Deep attention to Scripture. New people coming to Jesus. And radical generosity. Is that the kind of church you want to be a part of? The invitation is to build that kind of church. And it's a task that's never finished. It's a task we've been working on. I mean, none of this is new. We talk about this kind of stuff all the time, don't we? Because Christianity is not a wheel that you reinvent. It's a faith you receive. Let's keep building this kind of community. Let's keep building at it. And we will trust the Lord who suffered for us and who was raised for us, who has given his spirit to dwell within us. We will trust that he will bear fruit for his kingdom. He will bear fruit for his kingdom if we follow You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.